0: Luke chapter 11, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version, and I will start at verse 21, and we'll go to 26. And the word of the Lord, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor, and which he had relied on, relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh will... Excuse me. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. If you open up your bulletin, we're at our catechism portion of our service. I just want to remind you, catechism actually comes from the Greek word "catecheo," which is teaching by mouth, or question and answer. So this is a mechanism uh, that we like to use to teach us the great truths of of the faith. So the Baptist Catechism it aligns with our church's confession of faith, which is the uh, 1689 London uh, Second London Baptist Confession. It's historic Baptist confession that we find very edifying for our faith. Uh, and so we hold to Scripture alone as our authority, uh, and so we don't put these uh, catechisms or we don't put these confessions. Uh, on par or above Scripture, but these confessions also do help us explain the great doctrines and truths uh, of the Word. So it's very edifying to our walk. So we are in the Catechism section, and we're going through the Ten Commandments, and we've came up now to the fifth commandment. Now the first four commandments are are on the first table of uh, the Ten Commandments, meaning these the first four commandments are our duty to God. And now we're going to the second table of the commandments. And we're entering now our duty towards man. And I I don't think it's a coincidence that the very first commandment in God's moral law on our duty towards men on earth is the commandment to honor your father and your mother. And so last week we said the commandment, this week we're going to go into a little bit about what the commandment means. So uh, I'll say the question and then in unison we'll say the answer together. Question 69. What is required in the fifth commandment? Answer, the fifth commandment requires the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. The framers of the confession looked at this more than just obeying your parents. And you see the way that they answered in the, in the catechism is that this has to do with showing honor to whom honor is due. Any superior, anyone that has authority over you, you're fulfilling this commandment when you're honoring and submitting to them in the Lord. Does that make sense? So they would look at this as not just your parents you're to honor, uh, but many of the framers go as far as the, the king and the civil magistrate is supposed to be like a father to the people. Actually, there's a text in Isaiah that refers to the king as a tender, loving father. Uh, Now, we know and you know my position on our current civil magistrate is more as a tyrant, and we should encourage the tyrant to be more like a loving father, but we should still honor and and respect those who have authority over us. And all of us live under some sort of authority. God gives that in the word. Uh, So I just want to read a few things from Thomas Watson's Uh, body of divinity regarding this because we know that the commandment is to show honor to our parents and he says how are children to show honor to their parents he gets very practical and he answers this in two buckets number one by a reverential esteem of their mother and father a reverential esteem they are to esteem their parents he says both inwardly by fear mixed with love and not fear as in a child cowering because he's going to be hurt by a parent, but a respectful, reverent fear towards and honor towards their parent, both inwardly and outwardly. Outwardly in, in word, how, they, how children speak of their parents. Which, by the way, we still, no matter your age, are to fulfill this commandment by honoring our parents as grown adults, by esteeming them in our hearts and speaking good of them uh, to others. I have a good friend that doesn't go to this church. Uh, he has grown children, and I've had a chance to meet, I think, three of the four grown children. And to see them speak about their father as a grown child and the way that they look at their father with love and respect and honor, it was a great encouragement uh, to me, I know that this friend of mine, uh, he didn't just rule with the rod, he also ruled with love. See, parents can cower their children into obeying externally with a harsh rule and a harsh hand, but they're not going to grow up and be these types of children that I see these in their 20s where they have an honor, love, and respect uh, for their father. So that's what we mean by having a reverential esteem of the mother and father, both inwardly and outwardly, and the second way to honor your parents is by having, he says, by careful obedience. Colossians three twenty says, "Children, obey your parents in all things." And in Ephesians, to obey your parents in the Lord. This is, means all lawful things, children. You are to obey your parents in everything they ask you to do, so long as it agrees with Scripture. So, if your parents asked you to sin, then obviously you wouldn't obey that command. Uh, but it's very important just to obey your parent uh, means more than what we think. First, it's also hearkening their counsel. It's children, it's taking your parents' advice. You older children, when your parents give you advice and counsel and wisdom, to honor your parent means to take that, consider it, and act upon it so long as it uh, uh, aligns with Scripture. But there is this part of obedience. Obedience to parents, he says, is shown in complying with their commands. He says a child should be the parent's echo. When the father or mother speaks, the child should echo back obedience. Now, parents, I actually want to give you a word of encouragement because I believe many of us can actually exasperate our children by allowing them to not obey by asking them three and four times to do the same thing over and over again, teaching them, oh, I only obey when mom asks me the fourth time and gets really upset and her face gets really red. That's when I obey, okay? So you're actually perpetuating and causing your child to stumble into sin by not securing first-time obedience. Parents, when we ask our child if they're Your seven-year-old, eight-year-old is playing a game on the living room floor, and and you ask him or her to go make your bed because you forgot to when you woke up or whatever the case may be, and and they get up, yes, ma'am, and and they go, and they go you know, color on their coloring book just for a few minutes and then go make their bed, did they obey their mom and dad? They did not. They did not. They went to do something that they wanted to do, before they obey. So that's not obedience. So, you know, I can get real, I can hark on the kids. Kids, obey your parents. But we need to, parents, we need to do some self-reflection. And are we causing our own children to stumble in this area? There have been many times where I've had to repent to my own children and say, I am sorry. I am the reason why you're stumbling in this area because I have allowed it. That is wrong of me to allow you to do this or to do this or whatever the case may be. Here was the right way that I should have done. And here going forward, we had to recalibrate. Going forward, here is the right way that I am to be a father. And here is the right way that you are to respond uh, in obedience. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And again, there's a reason why this is the first, very first commandment on the second half of the table uh, when it comes to our, uh, our duty towards man. So uh, parents, children alike, Let's work on obedience and honor from the heart, and let's please our Lord and Savior. Amen.
1: Wanted to make mention that we're so excited that next Sunday, which will be Palm Sunday, uh, the youth voices of Grace Covenant Church will be singing and worshiping the Lord through several songs. So uh, we look forward to that, to hearing them uh, as they worship the Lord together. Turn to hymn number 120, Jesus Shall Reign. Let's stand together and worship. <clears throat> <clears throat>
2: <clears throat> <clears throat> Jesus shall reign where the sun Does his successive journeys run His kingdom spread from shore to shore Till moon shall wax and wane no more To him shall endless prayer And endless praises crown His head His name like sweet perfume shall rise With every morning sacrifice People and realms of every tongue well, on his love with sweetest song, an infant voice shall proclaim, their early sings on his name. Let every creature rise and bring honor and glory to our King. Angels descend with song again, and earth repeat
1: the loud. Turn to page 186. This may be perhaps a new hymn for you, and I want to try to teach it this morning or this afternoon. It's called A Debtor to Mercy, page 186. Let's worship.
2: A debtor to mercy alone Of covenant mercy I see I come with your righteousness on My humble offering to bring The judgments of your holy law With me can they nothing to do my Savior's obedience and blood how all my transgressions from view The work which your goodness began The arm of your strength will complete Your promise is yes and amen And never was forfeited yet the future of things that are now, no power below or above can make you your purpose forego or sever my soul from your love. My name from the palms of your hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on your heart it remains Its marks of intelligible grace Yes, I to the end will endure Until I bow down at your throne Forever and always secure A
1: debtor to mercy alone Thank you, be seated.
0: Amen. So it's such great worship here. Well, in case you weren't counting the days, this is my last sermon preaching with two full-time jobs. So this week will be my last week at my job in and career in corporate banking, and uh, many people of the world would say that I'm giving up such a great lucrative career, and uh, I just praise God that I'm able to do that, and I praise God that God used my career in corporate banking as a mechanism to go into pastoral ministry, so it's such a blessing that uh, the Lord has worked in this church plan in just a couple years uh, and grown it as such. And I just praise the Lord uh, for the opportunity to have pastoring His flock that He died for as a full-time vocation. It's not something I take lightly at all. Um, and I'm just so very thankful and excited. Uh, you know, whatever you think about Martin Luther King Jr., his words go rain in my in my soul. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. That's uh, it's from my job. That's but anyways. Um, let's open the Word of God. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Today we continue our study on the Sermon uh, on the Mount, and we're going to be continuing in uh, Jesus' correcting of the Sixth Commandment. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus' longest recorded sermon, and it is, the, I believe, the f- most famous sermon um, in the world. And today we're going to look at uh, verses 23 and 24. I'm going to start at verse 21 to kind of get the whole context. And the word of the Lord says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And everyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so desperately need your help, Lord, to to accurately hear the Word of God. So God, I pray now as I preach your Word that you would help me to be true and accurate to the text. Help me apply it, Father, as you would apply it to our lives. Father, I pray you would use the Word to conform us to Christ, use the Word to break fallow ground, to break hardened hearts. God, I pray that you would use the Word of God today, Father, to open up blinded eyes even that are here or listening, that are in Christ, or maybe even deceived that, that they are saved, that you would use this word to exalt Christ, to bring sinners to salvation, to sanctify your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout the history of humanity, mankind has always struggled with understanding the depths of the fallenness of man. Mankind has always struggled to know how bad or how good is humanity. Our culture as a whole believes that mankind is pretty good. Wouldn't you agree? Not that mankind is good, but you would agree that culture pretty much believes that mankind is good. The culture as a whole. And unfortunately, this is a growing trend within evangelical churches that mankind is, you know, is basically good. Sure, we make some mistakes here and there, but... You know, at the core, we're pretty, humankind is, is pretty good. I mean, look at all the good things that mankind has done. Can't be that bad, right? Well, to show you kind of what I'm talking about, uh, last year, Ligonier did a State of the Theology survey, and they do this every two years. And in this survey, of all the respondents, 67% agree with the statement that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 67%, okay, that must be all the people not in church, right? All the people that uh, are atheists or, or uh, that aren't churched people, but those who consider themselves evangelical, 55%, more than half, agreed with the statement that everyone sins a little, but most people are good. Here's the key in that phrase, by nature. Over half of those who would affirm the gospel, affirm the personal work of Christ, a person's salvation by faith alone, agree that people are good by nature. Now I believe the reason for this misunderstanding is twofold, and it's as John Calvin rightly said in his Institutes of Christian Religion, and he says in the beginning of it and I'm going to paraphrase, he says, "To even begin to know and understand God." you must first know and understand yourself. And to know and understand yourself, he says, you first must know and understand God. Wrap your head around that. There's a lack of knowledge of God, and there's a lack of knowledge of mankind running rampant in our country and rampant in our churches. Pastors, pastors don't teach the true attributes of God. Pastors don't teach the whole counsel of God. They don't teach the law of God, nor do they teach the demands of the law of God. So what we're left with is a distorted view of God that he's not much different than us. His standards are not that high. You know, we by nature are pretty good because we pretty much keep God's law. There's an evangelist in Southern California who was mentioned today in the Bible study who does a great job of showing lost men just how far they are from being a good person. And this is Ray Comfort. If you ever listen to Ray Comfort, he does the good person test. You go outside right here and ask anybody that walks by, hey, do you think you're a good person? Most of them will say, yes, I do. And Ray Comfort, very... Uh, systematically goes through and, well, let's put that to the test. And he said, do you know the Ten Commandments? Most people say not all of them. Well, name one. Well, don't lie. Okay, have you ever lied before? Well, yes. What do you call someone who lies? Well, a liar. And he goes through the commandments, and then he says, so by your own admission, you're admitting that you're a lying, adulterating uh, fornicator that takes the Lord's name in vain as a cuss word, or something like that. And then You know, if God works in that person's life and works by the Holy Spirit, they usually kind of clicks for them like, wow, I'm really not a good person according to God's standards, right? And as believers, if our minds are not being renewed by the word of God, we will slowly be conformed to the world and listen, we will deceive ourselves into thinking that we're pretty good, which that only leads to pride, my friends, and what becomes... Before a fall, pride. We have to be renewed by the Word of God. So, if you were to look at your life as a believer from the time you went, by the time you came to Christ, and if you were to put your sanctification, your life, you you want to be like Christ. I hope so, right? You want to get to the prize, the goal, which is Christ, and your sanctification is going from your sinful state and being more and more like Christ. If you were to graph your sanctification. Uh, it should look like a slow increase, right? Kind of like going like this. Or you have your downfalls, but you're getting more like Christ, right? That's where your sanctification will look like, okay? Because who God saves, He sanctifies. But it's natural to our minds as we're growing in the knowledge of God, as we're growing in the knowledge of ourself and our sinful state, it is only natural in our minds for our sanctification to look more like this. I feel like I'm getting worse and worse and worse. Has anybody ever felt like that other than me? It's only natural to feel like that. Why? Because as we grow in our understanding of the depths of man's sin and the nature of God, and the depths of the demands of his law and his word, we actually feel like we're getting further and further from being like Christ. Can you relate to that? You think, well, that's just awful. I don't want to live my life like that. Is it really a bad thing? You may think, wow, this is so discouraging, That I want to be like Christ, but I feel like I'm getting further and further away from being like Christ. Well, my friends, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. With when we grow in the knowledge and understanding of God, His holiness, when we grow in our understanding of the knowledge, excuse me, of our sinful state, we grow in our love for Him, do we not? We grow in our humility as well, do we not? We grow in our thankfulness, because the more we understand how sinful we are, the more we understand God's law and the demands that his law really places on our lives. And we see how the Pharisees missed it, and we see today God showing the true intention of the law. When we see that and how far away we are, gosh, my love for Christ grows exponentially. Like, wow, I am so even far away from even obeying one of the commandments with my whole heart, Lord, but you still saved me, and you still don't leave me. So it's not a bad thing to think about. It's not a bad thing to think that you might be further and further away, but in actuality, friends, you actually are getting more and more like Christ. In our text today, Christ fully expounds upon the original intent and demands of the sixth commandment, which in turn should grow us in our understanding of the holiness of God, the depravity of man, and our need of his grace. So let's dive into the text today. I read verses 21 to 24. We're going to focus in on verse 23 and 24. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I, I preached... Uh, 21 and 22, if you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go back and look look into that. But we're gonna look at verse 23 and 24, which say this, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So here we see three themes in these two short passages that I want to expound upon. First, kind of starting with the micro, like looking at it in, in a narrow scope, but then we're going to kind of go back and see what are the, what's the broader theme that Jesus is saying here. Well, the first, I think, very obvious that I think we see when we read and give a casual reading of the passage is this, what Jesus is saying here is that we must aggressively seek peace with others. We must aggressively seek peace with others. The last time I preached, we look at verses 21 and 22, which addresses the negative aspect of the sixth commandment, not to be angry with your brother, with your sister, not to hold anger in your heart towards them, okay? You you think, very well, I I haven't killed anybody, right? I haven't overtly killed anyone, and I see what you're saying now, Mark, very, very well. I'm going to get rid of my anger, or maybe you don't struggle with that. I'm going to get rid of my anger. That's good. So, So I'm pleasing to God now that I'm not killing people overtly and having anger towards other people. Well, the law demands even more than that. The sixth commandment demands even more than that. Jesus here in our text takes it from the negative and now addresses the positive aspect of the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is not just avoiding the overt act of murder. It's not just avoiding negative emotions towards others like anger, envy, strife, and so forth. But Jesus here in 24, and 24 addresses that our attitude towards others must be positive, must be positive. In other words, we must not only avoid evil thoughts and emotions towards our neighbor, friends, but we must have such a positive attitude towards them. That we would be so compelled as to take positive steps to seek peace with them at all costs. Look at the text, verse 23. It starts out by saying, therefore. Now, anytime the therefore is there, you've got to ask, what is the therefore there for? Okay? It's part of your exegesis that you want to do when you're reading your Bible. It's a very simple thing you can do when you're studying the Word of God. He says, therefore. Okay, So there must be something that he just said that's going to connect with what he said. And that's what the word in the Greek literally means. It's, to, it's a conjunction which connects what was just said with what he's about to say. He's connecting the sentences together in a logical fashion. The word can be translated therefore, or that being so, or that being the case. It can also transla- be translated accordingly, which I think gives the idea here that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus is trying to say, I believe he's saying here, because the sixth commandment avoids the negative emotions of anger, it also includes, or accordingly, in the same manner of our, having our hearts right towards our brother, in the negative way, accordingly, it also has to do with having a positive attitude towards our brothers and sisters having such a positive attitude that even our own worship should be abruptly paused, disrupted, when we know that someone has something against us. He says there in verse 23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Now in the text, the word for something where he says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, your version might say ought if your brother has an ought against you. The word in the Greek literally just means something. It's not, there's not a specific thing. Jesus is just saying, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, anything against you, notice that he doesn't say justly against you. He doesn't say if he has something, he has a valid reason to, like, you've truly offended him, you've done something wrong. He doesn't make that clarification here. He just says if they have something against you, it might be something that's false. They might have taken something you've done in the wrong way. You did nothing wrong, but they have something against you, he says, leave your, your offering at the altar. So this could be something justified or could be something unjustified. Now, friends, I want you to take notice of how abrupt, how aggressive Jesus calls here in the text to leave your offering there at the altar to go make it right with a brother that has something against you, you got to put yourself in first century uh, Middle East, and you got to think about and really picture what's happening here. This this uh, story that Jesus is saying about a person who makes a trip to go present an offering at the altar—it was a big deal. This was their means of grace. This was the way that they worshipped, friends. This worshiper would come to worship Yahweh from a long distance oftentimes, would bring an animal for a sacrifice, a burnt offering or a sin offering, depending on what type of offering they're giving to the Lord. They would make a journey of many miles through harsh conditions with their animal sacrifice. Could have been a goat, could have been a lamb, could have been turtle doves, so if they didn't have the means to have a goat or a lamb or pigeons, if they could not afford the former, and they had to be without blemish. And they would come and they would wait patiently in line to offer their sacrifice, their worship to Yahweh. He sits there and waits patiently as the, as the offerings are being sacrificed and the priests are performing these acts of worship. He was there more than likely because he needed to confess his sins and to seek forgiveness. So there he is. he's waiting in line, tired. It's his turn to come up to offer his sacrifice. And depending on the type of offering, in many cases, he would confess his sins, lay his hand upon the animal on the animal's head, symbolizing the transmission of sin to the sacrifice, and then slay the animal. And it's at that moment, it's at that point, he remembers that his brother, maybe miles away, his brother has an ought against him. Well, everyone's looking at him. Everyone's waiting. Maybe at this point, he should just tell himself, well, I'll just continue. Everybody's waiting. I'll just complete what I came to do, and then I'll go to my brother and make it right with him. I mean, if I walk away now, well, what, what is everybody going to think? It's at that point, brothers and sisters, Jesus says, leave your offering right there. Don't even take your offering with you. Just leave it right there and go. That word is emphatic. It means to rush. Go, seek reconciliation with your brother. The message here that Jesus is giving is to do it aggressively. Don't wait. Do it before God will even accept your worship. Now, it's very important to take note, friends, that Jesus doesn't say, if you have aught with your brother, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, leave your sacrifice. If you have something or unforgiveness or bitterness towards your brother, leave it. Now, that's actually in other passages, right? That's in other passages. In Mark chapter 11, verse 25 says, Whenever you stand praying, that's an act of worship, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. So, in your act of worship, you ought not to hold on to bitterness or unforgiveness. God will not accept your worship. But that's not what the text is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. Matter of fact, this person who's getting ready to worship, it doesn't say anything about their heart not being right. Their heart could be in the right place. They're performing their religious duty in the right way. They don't have anything, supposedly, against their brother. But they remember that their brother has something against them. That's very important to remember, friends. Jesus goes even beyond cleansing your own heart before worship to make sure things are right with your brother before worship. You could be fine. You could say, I don't have any problems. I don't have any ought. I I didn't do anything. I'm not guilty. I have no unforgiveness. I have no bitterness. But you know that they have something against you. Now think about, friends, He's expounding and he's correcting the misinterpretation of the sixth commandment. This is what the true demands of the law are upon us. This exemplifies the demands of the law of God. This was and still is the original intent of the sixth commandment. Yes, brothers and sisters, you are your brother's keeper. You are. If you profess Christ, brothers and sisters, you may not have an attitude of, "Well, he's got a problem with me. I don't have a problem. That's his problem." Friends, that is not a Christian attitude. It's not a Christian attitude to say, "Well, that's her problem. She, she, I didn't do anything wrong. We are to seek peace, brothers and sisters, even, even if we have nothing against the brother. Or the sister. We are to do everything that we can do to seek peace. And Paul says it this way in Romans twelve, eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans 14 19 says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Psalm thirty four fourteen, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Ephesians four three. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And first Thessalonians five thirteen, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. This is what Jesus is trying to say here. He's not trying to say, get your heart right, although your heart ought to be right. He's saying that the the sixth commandment demands so much of us as to not kill people overtly, not to have even anger or envy or strife in our hearts, not to have negative feelings towards our brothers and sisters. It's not so good just to get the negative out of your heart that you also have, have to have a positive inclination and a positive love towards your brother's and your sisters even so much so again when you know someone someone has something against you friends go make it right as far as it depends on you go ask them have i done something to offend you i, I notice there's something not right with us i don't i don't feel like the our relationships like it was have i done something are you sure simple questions to ask Simple questions. The demands of the sixth commandment include having such love towards your brothers and sister that you seek for their good. You seek for their very good, and when you have an opportunity, you do good to them, displaying your overall positive attitude, which moves you to action. So secondly, so we looked at the narrow scope. We want to make sure that we uh, are aggressively seeking peace with our brothers and sisters. Second, if we back up just a little bit more and we look at what we looked at last time, what we looked at this time, we get this principle. And that's the overarching principle of the sixth commandment is the very sanctity of life. The overarching principle... Of the sixth commandment is the sanctity of life. Thou shalt not murder. What leads to the unjust loss of life? Jesus addresses it here in the text and in the verses right before. Negative feelings towards another and not having positive love towards another. These are the things that lead to the overt actions of murder. The Sixth Commandment essentially includes all actions or emotions that can lead to murder. Brothers and sisters, man is made in the image of God, amago Dei. And to fulfill the Sixth Commandment is to do all things necessary to preserve the sanctity of life. And it starts at the very root of it all, which is in your heart. Starts at the root. As we grow in our love towards others, as we grow in our humbleness, not having anger towards others, we grow in fulfilling the sixth commandment. Well, there's another principle here that's a bit outside of the Sixth Commandment. If you kind of take your lens and go a little bit higher and kind of look at the 50,000-foot view, we get a very important principle, and I'm going to spend the rest of time on this. This is number three. I want you to think about, before I tell you this principle, why would Jesus introduce this example of someone worshiping? He's telling us not to have anger in our hearts. As it's, it's as if you're committing murder. And now he's addressing the positive aspect. Why is he bringing up this idea of worship? He could have just left the worship part out. He could have made his point, right? He could have just said, hey, if you know your brother or sister has something against you, go make it right with them. Seek peace. If he left the worship part out, wouldn't it have the point been still made to us, right? If we know that someone has something against us, Go seek peace with them. Try to be reconciled with them. Why does he bring up this idea of worship and and, and abruptly pausing your worship to be reconciled to your brother? Why, did he do, why does he do this? Well, here's the principle that I see in the text. He does this because, friends, number three, worship is not divorced from Christian ethics. Worship is not divorced from Christian ethics, meaning God does not separate our worship from our ethical integrity or lack thereof. Look at the text here in verse 24. This person is not corrected for how he's worshiping, his worship seems acceptable. Nothing seems to be wrong with the person while preparing to worship. He could have had his mind and heart in the right place. However, because God says to leave it at the altar, God is not accepting his worship until he seeks reconciliation with his brother. Because the worshiper, listen, the worshiper did not have a positive attitude in regards to his brother. God would not accept his sacrifice. God would not accept his worship. This is the principle throughout all of Scripture. This is not anything new, friends. This is not anything new. God will not accept our worship if we neglect another spiritual area of our lives. So remember, during that time, the sacrificial system, it was their means to worship Yahweh, the ceremonial law, the sacrifice the different types of sacrifices. this was their way to worship God. If you were to ask a Jew in first century, "Hey, how and where do you go to worship God?" They would tell you it 's at the temple okay that 's why Jesus and John at the woman uh, at the well, the Samaritan woman, said that there 's a coming a day and now is that day will well, will worship God, not in that mountain or that mountain, but will worship God everywhere, and will worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, so back then, the way to worship God was to go to the temple for our worship through through the sacrificial system. So that was their means to worship. So fast forward to the New Testament Christians. We don't have an altar. We don't have a sacrificial system. But as it is in our confession... In chapter 22, verse, or paragraph 5 says that these are the acts of worship for the New Testament scripture, uh, Christian. The reading of Scripture, preaching, hearing the Word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, things that we're doing today. These are all parts of religious worship to God, in addition to the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are our ways that we worship God, and they're to be performed, it says, in obedience, with understanding, faith, reverence, godly fear, so on and so forth. And then in the next paragraph, it says, God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily, and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in public assemblies, like we're doing today, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calls there unto. So in other words, that was their means of worship. I wanted you to get the idea, okay, it wasn't just the sacrifice. It was God was interrupting the whole worship. God was connecting the ethical integrity of this person with their way that they were worshiping. Fast forward to our means of worship. How do we worship God? And the principle still holds true, and that's this, that God does not accept worship from you, from me, when our ethical integrity is compromised. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Or husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7 After Peter says to live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, that's how we are to treat our wives as Christ loved the church who gave himself for the church. He says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Prayer, whether private, whether public, is an element of worship, husbands, God will not accept your worship if you fail to honor your wife and live with her in an understanding way. Brothers, don't speak harsh to your wife on a Sunday morning and expect to come to God's house, to God's assembly, and accept God to accept your worship on Sunday evenings. Leave your offering at the altar, so to speak. Leave your offering at the altar. And go be reconciled with your wife. Wives, same goes for you. Don't be a contentious wife and be a stumbling block to your husband, never allowing him to lead, always wanting your way and having your way. And come and accept and believe that God will accept your worship. When you're lacking in one spiritual way over here, God will not accept your worship when you come to him, whether in private or whether in Public. Turn to Isaiah 1, and we see what God thinks about worship when ethical integrity is compromised. Isaiah chapter 1. Starting at verse 10. So this is God speaking to his people, Israel. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He just called his people, Israel, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know you're not starting off on the right foot when God calls you Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen to what he says. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. Friends, God commanded them to bring these sacrifices, and now he's saying, I take no pleasure in them. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? He says, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. He says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. The feasts that he prescribed for them to do, he says, I hate them. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. He says, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. He says, verse 16, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Here we see what God thinks about worship when ethical integrity is compromised. We see what the compromise, uh, co- uh, what the compromise was. He's telling them, hey, I'm sick of your feast. Learn to do good. Get the evil deeds away from my sight. Don't come into my house and defile my temple with your evilness and think that I'm going to accept your worship. He says, reprove the ruthless, seek justice, defend the orphan and plead uh, for the widow. Now that last part of 17 is interesting. They obviously weren't defending the orphans and they weren't pleading for the widows, and this is the actual foundation of true religion according to James. Chapter 1, verse 27. Remember that text? He says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Brothers and sisters, you cannot ignore what he says undefiled religion you cannot ignore these things and yet seek God's blessing why orphans why widows because they're the least of these they are the most vulnerable friends now I will say this too: orphans who what are what are what's the mark of an orphan it's somebody who has been abandoned by their father and by their mother is that not right they are fatherless friends did you know we have orphans running rampant in our country, they've been abandoned by their father and by their mother. And I'm not talking about South Carolina's orphanage uh, orphanage program, which has hundreds—the last time I checked—which is a lot of orphans, and we should be taking care of them. But friends, there are thousands, thousands in our state of orphans who have been abandoned by their father by their mother each year so much to the point that they're being killed by their father and by their mother those are orphans and we have we have neglected them overall and i'm talking about yes abortion I'm talking about the the sin of murdering your own child they have been abandoned by their father they have been abandoned by their mother to the point where they're paying somebody to kill them that's the true or the that's the big orphan crisis thousands will probably be 10,000 just in the state of South Carolina this year. Another text to look at to see what God thinks about worship when we have compromised ethics is Amos chapter 5. You can write this down and look this one up later or, or turn quickly. Amos 5.21, God says, "'I hate, I reject your festivals.'" nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Again, he commanded them to do these things. He commands us to worship him in song. Could you be neglecting a spiritual area of your life so much that God listens to your songs and it's just noise. He says, take away the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. In verse 24, he says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God's people, Israel, They neglected these things of justice, pleading for the widow, pleading for the orphan. And then they came and they tried to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. And God says, I hate them. You're neglecting these things over here. Don't come to me and worship me thinking that I'm going to accept your worship. So friends, apply that to today's life. Apply that to today. What areas of your life have you neglected so much that you're not obeying God over here and you know you're not and when you hear Scripture apply that area of your life, you either ignore it or try to, or try to reason away from it. But you come to church, you, you pray at home, you read your Bible, you worship God. God will not, friends, accept your worship. And I encourage you to repent whatever that is, friends. Whatever that is, repent, confess it to God. Jesus said on two occasions Matthew 9:13 being one of them but go and learn what this means I desire compassion and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners God is concerned friends about your heart God is concerned about your heart and as we'll see in the upcoming sermons Uh, This is the first illustration of six that Jesus gives to correct the pharisaical legalism and to show the true intent of the law, that it's not simply externalism, but it's also internal. And don't miss that either, because there's there's a sect of Christianity that they ignore the external And then they make up subjective internal obedience. You know what I'm saying? Well, God knows my heart, right? You've heard that. Totally ignoring the external letter of the law and making up a subjective spirit of the law. Oh, God knows my heart. And as long as I'm okay, I can go have an abortion. You know, God understands. Or maybe it's not that extreme. But you know what? God knows my heart You know, so it's okay if I lash out and yell at my kids in anger. You know, God knows, God knows my heart. The Jews ignored the internal and totally twisted the external in many cases. Friends, it's not an either or. It's a both and. God cares about the internal, but he also cares very much about the external. Okay, you need to obey the spirit of the law and the letter of the law not negating one for the other. So this is just the first example, and I pray and I hope that as we're going through these, you see that we're not as good as we thought we are. All this is wrapped up in the sixth commandment. This is all part of the sixth commandment. It's one of six illustrations that he gives that I hope will show you just how holy and righteous God is and how merciful he is to save you, despite how much you've disobeyed his law, how far you are away. You may have never overtly killed someone. But you see what the sixth commandment entails. And if you're honest with yourself, you fall short. You fall very short. You're very guilty of this. Now, a crowd this size, it's not probably a stretch to say you probably have overtly broken the sixth commandment with the sin of abortion, killing your preborn baby. And we call it what it is it is murder in the sight of God. Whether you're the mom that was complicit or the father that was complicit, I venture to say many of us, in fact, I know at least some of us have been guilty of that sin of murder. Praise God. Praise God that He is so merciful to us that if you're in Christ, he actually has forgiven you of that sin of premeditating the murder of your own child. I can't comprehend what kind of love the God of this universe has for somebody who would do that. It just grows our love for him. But God has always linked worship with ethical integrity. So what areas of your life, brothers and sisters, are you neglecting that is hindering your worship? Perhaps it's anger. You lash out at others in anger. Or maybe it's not the negative, but the positive. You just, you're indifferent towards other people. You don't really have a positive attitude towards others. And, you know, someone gets offended. You know something's wrong with them, but you know what? If they don't say anything, then I'm fine. I'm good. I don't have anything wrong with them my heart, or perhaps you're just an offensive person and you talk too much and offend others and think it's okay, or maybe you're a contentious person. So in light of all these things, brothers and sisters, ask yourself, am I keeping the sixth commandment? So do you still think you're a good person? If any of this has convicted your heart, praise God. Praise God that the word and the spirit is working in your heart. And brothers and sisters, if any of this convicts your heart, then I encourage you to repent, confess your sins, confess these area of your life. The law, friends, the law of God is a tutor. Friends, it's meant to drive us to Christ. You know, you might think, Mark, man, your messages are always convicting. Wow, they always make me feel bad. But friends, you've got to feel bad for your sin before God can heal your wounds. The law of God is a tutor. It is meant to bring us to Christ and what mercy God has shown us, what mercy God has shown us as we continually break his law. May we grow in our love and may we grow in our appreciation for Christ, for his law and his mercy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we praise you that you are so merciful to us. God, what great demands your law puts upon us. Oftentimes, God, I feel like your law creates such a burden, God, but I thank you because it drives us to Christ and And, Lord, as it says in the book of Acts, that with repentance comes a cleansing and a washing of sin. Lord, help us to never avoid the hard things in your word out of fear of of being, well, convicted. But, God, help us to grow in our love for you as we see the great demands of your law. Help us to to confess, God, that we fall short. God, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder Father, it's a commandment that I don't don't even think I can ever come close to perfectly obeying. But Christ did it on our behalf. So God, help us to grow in our thankfulness so that we can strive, God, through prayer, through the renewing of our minds, God, through the preaching of your word, through confession, so that we can grow in our sanctification, so we can grow and be more like Christ to a lost and dying world. Father, I give a special prayer, Father, for the fathers here, God, that have neglected areas of their spiritual lives, whether it's their relationship with their wives, their relationship with their children, Father, their relationship with their coworkers, or even their relationship with their work. God, if if any of, that, any of those areas are not honoring, God, I pray that you would convict the Father's hearts today, God, that we would, we would repent, we would confess these things to you. God, as the, the man that went to worship, God, he remembered that a brother had an ought against him. Help us, God, to diligently consider the things that may not be pleasing to you. Bring them into remembrance so that we can confess them, Father, and repent of them. I pray for the mothers here, God. I thank you for giving us godly mothers. But, God, I pray for them that you would convict their hearts, God, of areas of their life where they are neglecting, Father, ignoring, or flat out in rebellion to you. That you would convict their hearts today, right now, Father, that they would confess, that they would give up, confess and submit to Christ and repent of their sins. Lord, that their worship may be acceptable to you. The same goes for the children here, God, young and old. I pray that you would convict their hearts, God, for the things that they're compromising, their ethical integrity upon, God. Lord, I pray that you would accept our worship, that you would free us, God, from whatever sin that entangles us, that you would accept our worship. For all others, God, for the young singles, for the older retired, God, whoever is listening, God, I pray that you would bring into remembrance those things that we've neglected. Lord, that you've, by your Holy Spirit, you've you've prodded us, you've poked us. God, break us so that we understand how we've displeased you, God, that it would bring us to godly repentance. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, Lord. Help us, God. We need your grace. We need your grace, God, to even... Be sorrowful over our sin. Help us, God, we pray. Jesus' name.